Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Goalie Science, the podcast that bridges the gap between goal setting, science, and peak performance. I'm your host, Jamie Phillips, a former professional goalie, currently pursuing a doctorate in physical therapy and specializing in goalie performance coaching. Joining me as always is Dr. Ben Cernick, a seasoned goalie coach and sports analytics specialist. Whether you find yourself at home, on the road, or at the rink, grab a cup of your favorite beverage and let's drop the puck on this week's episode. All right, today we are fortunate enough to be joined by Dr. Rob Gray, who I am going to completely allow to introduce himself. So, Dr. Gray, can you please do us all the pleasure and introduce us, uh, introduce yourself to the listeners so they know who we're speaking with today? Yes, thanks, Ben. Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm uh, Rob Gray. I'm a my main job is I'm a professor at Arizona State University. Uh, I study a variety of things. Uh, mostly recently, I study kind of skill acquisition. How people learn motor learning, kind of improve skills. Um, I apply. I've applied that for many years in working with different Olympic sports, including hockey. Uh, a lot of what I do is baseball. My main kind of side gig now is I work with the Boston Red Sox, is helping with the practice design and and training. Uh, also relevant to this, I am Canadian. I'm from Toronto, and I grew up playing hockey. I was a hockey goaltender for many many years. I played up until college, so. I, I miss it sometimes, but you don't get much hockey down here in Arizona. So, um, yeah, so that's my background. Yeah, so we are, we are super fortunate um, to be joined today because this is something near and dear to my heart. Uh, everyone listening who knows who puts up with me constantly talking about the research that we do in my lab and the stuff that I look at in, in the science approach to practice design uh, and skill acquisition knows or is going to be in for a, a special treat because a lot of the stuff that I spout is actually just regurgitating what Dr. Gray says. Um, but again, like I said, like we've kind of talked about before in the show, we talk a lot about, about practice design and how practice isn't always the most favorable to hockey goalies. Uh, it's not always designed with goalies in interest. We see kind of the same issues in soccer. So I was just kind of curious to not specifically ask about the problem for practice design with goalies, but in just a general sense, what are some of the kind of the common classic pitfalls of motor learning design issues in team sports? So things that we see in hockey, even to some degree, obviously in baseball and soccer, any of those team sports, 
where you find, again, common pitfalls in standard or typical practice design that, that you see? Yeah, I guess the biggest one is, you know, we're, we're starting to change our view of what's the best way to learn skills from, you know, for a long time, we've had this kind of very traditional approach that the coach tells you the way to do something. Here is the way you do a slap shot. Here is the way you do a butterfly. Then you repeat that over and over and over again until you get it down. You can do it automatically. Um, we've kind of uh, more and more realized, you know, there's not just one way to do things. There's depends on the individual. It's much better if you kind of let people learn on their own and and you can't repeat the same. Don't make the same butterfly save every time. There's people in front of you, call shots from different angles. So you need multiple different uh, movement solutions or ways to stop the puck. So it's better to allow your athletes to become adaptable instead of just learning the one, the one correct way you think to do things. So that's kind of the movement that's happening in, in a lot of different sports. Yeah, and I know that the the one big challenge, and again, so myself and my co-host, Jamie, whoever listening knows, discuss a lot that in like a one-on-one -on -one coaching setting and what we see a lot is our parents are a little, they always want to see the engagement from coaches, right? They want to see that constant correction, want to see, and, and I know that's the number one piece of pushback that you've talked about a lot in the past on your show uh, and some of your research as well, that letting uh, again, self-organized, letting athletes, letting goalies kind of do things and figure them out and figure out their own movement solutions on their own doesn't always look like coaching is happening, right? You say yeah. that is one of like the most common things that practitioners or coaches struggle with is, well, I want to let the kids figure it out, but the parents are going to yell at me for doing nothing. Yeah, you do get it a lot. I've had that happen to me too. When are you going to start coaching? You know, people kind of have this view that a good practice is everybody's organized, standing in lines, waiting to do their turn. Everything's very orderly, letting things kind of go chaotic and like playing a small sided two on three game and, and stuff doesn't look as like the coach is controlling things, which is part of the whole point, right? The, where part of the point in this approach is letting the practice do the talking for you rather than trying to control everything that everybody is doing all the time as a coach. So it's letting go a lot of the control as a coach. But yeah. You have to kind of prime people for that, how that's going to look. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I spend a lot of my time doing that with parents is, hey, like, I know your kid was diving around a little bit more maybe than you're comfortable with, but it was, you know, your your kid is eight. And I think that's important that they learn to try different things because, again, they're eight years old and three feet tall. So they're not quite uh, they're not quite <laughs> adult sized yet, um, which I think kind of ties into one of the big topics of conversation that's uh, I kind of mentioned this before the show that's been really popular in Canada is recently Hockey Canada following trend of other countries has changed minor hockey so under the age of nine to half ice hockey um which again i've spoken about this before in the show i'm a big fan of i think when we think of just how many more chances players get to touch the puck and skate with the puck and move it and goalies even young goalies who get their turn in net when they're rotating through they get even more shots because the game is just faster compared to that full ice but we've seen a decent amount of pushback against this because it, it looks a traditional i was kind of hoping if you could kind of just touch on from again your experience and you already mentioned small sided games but also how other sports have adopted different types of scaling and, and what that looks like and why that's important yeah so the the kind of the way that we want to kind of we recognize with young athletes or new athletes who need to simplify the game a little bit there's too much going on usually so the way that we want to do is cut you're right the term we use is scaling let's reduce everything down instead of the more traditional way of breaking it apart having you stick handle around cone instead of facing another player, 
Um, so yeah, reducing the space in small sizes are sometimes called condition games. I think that's very, very effective. Um, and there's other sports when they do that with equipment, right? There's, I give it, there's some great research on tennis, for example, when you give like kids play with smaller rackets and lower compression balls that don't bounce as high, they learn to play tennis much more effectively and it smoothly transfers into adult equipment and easily without, I think that's a problem most people would worry about half size hockey. As soon as you put them on the full rink, they'll be lost. Right. But it, it seems to, you get this kind of, it seems to transfer quite well, actually. Um, but you're right. It's just going to give them more chances to interact with other players, experience spacing, all the things that's going to be the same when they're on the full ice, right? And we'll probably wear them out less, right? They have to skate yeah. less, cover less room. Yeah. Yeah. It's more chance for, for learning. I think you're right. That's the absolute, the biggest pushback is that people think it's not going to transfer or transfer, or it doesn't look like the, the type of sport that they know, right? Mm -hmm. Hockey's been kind of slow adopting it. Um, I think for years now, right? You said you mentioned tennis, but basketball, we don't hand a full-size adult basketball to a seven-year-old. Yeah. And ask them to shoot on a ten foot net because it's going to be pretty dis not only discouraging, mm -hmm. but it, it again is going to essentially the motor patterns that they're going to learn to explore are going to look a lot different at that age and that size compared to what ideally you would hope it would transfer to as they mature. Yeah, right. And so I had a funny conversation with a coach of a, I think an under eight team a few a few months ago, and some of the rules for this half ice hockey include using smaller nets, which I think is great as a goalie coach. Uh, having a scaled size net so that as kids get bigger, they still cover the same percentage of net. That's, I think that's a wonderful learning tool. Uh, you know, people don't always love that and that's okay. But I had a coach tell me that they didn't like the small nets because the, the goalies would just lay down and the kids couldn't raise the puck. And I thought that was hilarious, right? Like a <laughs> tiny seven-year-old goalie just lying down, classic what you imagine. <laughs> then I found out that the seven-year-olds were using the full weighted puck. So the adult puck. Right. Which again, <laughs> if we're thinking about that learning example, of course the goalie is just going to lay down, right? We, we've missed the mark on a part of that scaling adjustment, right? So you would mention the compressed, the different compression and tennis balls, right? It makes sense just to use a, a lighter puck as well for a kid who weighs thirty-five pounds. For sure, and and part of the challenge, you know, mentioned the another kind of challenge is yeah, when you do these kind of, you know, we call it constraints manipulations, mm -hmm. the size of the puck, the number of players, size of, and. Sometimes you can get well, players will cheat and shortcut what you're trying to achieve. You know, I've had the habit where, you know, I make rule that you have to pass three times before you shoot and they just stand at the top, pass back and forth three times and go play. So you have to get creative and and go around those things for sure. But yeah, no, I think that's a good, that's a good example of, you know, that's, the, it brings up an important concept we call representative design. Really, we want, we want a few key pieces there in practice. Like you want information. Are you still handling the puck in response to another player? Are you still using the same kind of movements? Um, those kind of things. Um, as long as their things are there, then we're okay with reducing less players, less size. Um, that seems to transfer very well. Yeah, and that's a, a perfect segue because you have this this wonderful video that I have posted to our followers a number of times, which is a, a kind of a presentation on YouTube about representative learning and hockey goaltending training. So. I remember watching that when that first came out and, and sharing it with lots of people, trying to get people to, to experience that. But you talk about representative design in goalie training, and it's something that's really difficult. So for example, I know that in a lot of private coaching settings, there is maybe one coach and maybe another shooter who might be helping out, but then a, a one goalie. There's, there's no defense. There's none of the kind of external variables that we see. And that's kind of the traditional sense of 
goalie training. It's the sense that I operate within when I'm working day to day with goalies. Now, obviously in that setting, you're not going to create a perfect representative design. There won't be five on five. There's not the chaos. There's not the refs, the fans, the whistles and everything in between. So trying to make that training approach as transferable and transfer being the, the biggest goal, right? What we learn actually transfers to how we would execute it from mm-hmm. practice to game. Uh, but I guess kind of the, the question there is what are, in your opinion, kind of the steps when you are in those more private settings and that is what you have to work with? What do you think are the steps there that can benefit goalies and I guess coaches to the same degree? Like how do they make that more representative for better transfer? Yeah, there's kind of two. Well, when I, so I work with a lot of coaches, you know, there's a resistance that they've been doing the same way for a long time. And one of the, I always start with variability, adding a little bit, variability to practice is beneficial in so many ways. So not doing the same, saving the same exact shot over and over. Um, I, I do, I did some work with some NBA teams this past fall. And I went out to their practice and the guys were shooting threes. And when there's no one around them, they, their percentage is like 90%. They can hit every shot because they're doing the same shot over and over and over. Right? Can we make them slightly different angles, someone in their face sometimes? So I think the same principle. Can we add a little variability to the shots you're giving them to save from the angles, the distances, you know, someone in front of them? And then can we make it a little more game-like, like consequences for the rebounds, right? When you give a big fat rebound, can you have someone stand there and go put it back in? Uh, things like that. So those are the two things I kind of stress initially, get people to, I kind of, can we add that a little bit of that to what you're already doing? to get people into it yeah yeah and that's exactly again now i say that's exactly what i've been trying to do mainly because i've already listened to you speak on that (laughs) so i sound great right now because this is uh the same things that that i preach but yeah that's some of the one of the biggest changes that i know that i made in my personal coaching journey and my personal coaching experience is you know as yourself as a goalie who's done goalie training and what you commonly see is it's all right all right you're going to go from point a to point b you're going to get this type of shot you're then going to go to point C, come back to B, and get this type of shot. And goalies look incredible in those drills. Yeah. <laughs> Were they really good? This is no different than saying, okay, you're going to get an 80 mile power fastball, middle in, and you can hit it 480 feet up. Yeah. Right? For sure. And yeah. so I think, yeah, variability is, I think, one of the the biggest things that I've tried to stress in my own training and, and I think, or my coaching. And I think that's been really beneficial, right? And like you, and like you mentioned there, it's just, it's, sometimes it's just, not starting from the same spot every time mm-hmm. or the shot or just moving five feet to the left, five feet to the right, five feet in just so that it's not the same, same, same learning experience every single time. Right. Yeah, for sure. A little bit of unpredictability. It doesn't have to be the full scale, like every possible shot that could happen, but a little bit more than the, doing the same thing over and over for sure. Yeah. And I think that is, that's again, that's what, like I said, what I've been trying to implement myself, but I think that is sometimes easier said than done. And like you said, coaches Hmm. have experience creating results, right? If you're a coach who's been coaching for 30 years and you have, you know, a dozen goalies who have made the NHL, it's going to be pretty hard to get someone to change their ways because they think they've created that recipe that works. And it's, it's, I think, not to say that there's anything inherently wrong with the original way of that coaching, but rather that it's maybe not as optimized as it could be. Is that? Yeah, for sure. Like I always stress, you know, the, the methods work, like almost anything works. We're yeah. kind of learning machine. Mm-hmm. Um, this is kind of more efficient use of practice time, I think, optimized. Um, the other thing I, I didn't mention, you know, so I think, um, you know, looking good in practice is something in motor learning, that's performing. That's not really learning. So I really stress, and, and you have to, co- to tell the players this and their parents, 
you you learn when you fail. Okay. So you you need some shots to you go in when you're practicing, right? If you're saving everything, you're not improving, right? That's that's just that's what you want to do in the game. You want to perform in the game, but um, to to put a push you and challenge you, we need to have some shots that you miss and things like that. So, um, getting that level of challenge, that kind of failure, is important. We don't want you to fail all the time. You're right. You're gonna disheartened and dismotivate, but, but you know, at least kind of twenty percent, twenty five percent, we should. And that's exactly what we call. We call the eighty I again yeah. myself and Jamie called the eighty twenty rule, right? Like you yeah. want especially and especially there's certain situations there's harder harder plays or more common mistakes in goaltending, right? So a goalie being a little bit out of position as a player moves laterally across the ice, that's a super common scenario. And mm-hmm. if a younger goalie's making that mistake often, you, you have to score on them. Like as a coach, yeah. that's the chance you score on them because that creates that learning opportunity. Mm-hmm. Right. They can identify the mistake. Or if they're, you know, younger and newer, that's coaching opportunity to go in there and provide that feedback. Right. Yeah. I think going back to some of it, again, like the discussion around ecological and dynamics and allowing kids to self-learn that process and self-learning. Mm-hmm. I think people misinterpret that as as saying that coaches shouldn't provide feedback. Yeah. Which I think is a bit of a maybe a straw man or maybe just an incorrect understanding of the approach. Right? It's not like if a, if a kid's been repeating the same mistake, coaches are just standing there and going, hmm, we'll just let them hold their stick entirely wrong at the bottom the entire time, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that that is a big misconception is that it's just letting them play, do whatever. You're right. You're right. You do want to, as a coach, step in. Sometimes it's instruction. Sometimes it's adding another type of constraint or something. You see something that you know is not going to be effective, they're not doing well, definitely for you, you want to step in and use your knowledge to the kind of thing we really don't like is doing that right from the start, right? Where we've got to explain all the things. Here's how you do a proper forehand and that put your foot here and, you know. But if you see something that's not effective, can we think of something that will get, move the person in that direction? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We just, I uh, know the, the company that I work with, we just wrapped up uh, like an eight-week beginner session with six, seven, eight-year-old goalies, which is really fun because mm-hmm. they're little sponges and they also just kind of flop around truthfully a lot. Which is, <laughs> it's funny. I get it yeah. as a coach. And again, it was, for again, for me, it was both challenging and exciting because again, kind of this was the first time that we had done this in a little while. So I got a, a bit of a refreshed approach to just kind of let them do a lot of their own learning, right? Like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to create this environment for the drill. Um, we included a little bit of variability, which again, for them, there's still something we're still learning to skate a little bit. So there's so many, again, their challenge point or their difficulty at each drill and each task was harder than an, mm-hmm. an older goalie. For sure. But it was, it was fun to see again, how much of it was just, you know, instead of, I want you to hold your stick this way in this save, it's, I want you to try and save it with your stick, right? Trying to reframe yeah. the the perspective <laughs> of that. Um, that was hard for me because sometimes you watch it and it's like, that looks awful. At least to what I, at least to what I think is yeah. supposed to look really good. Um, but then you take a step back and you're like, that's a seven year old or that's an eight year old, mm-hmm. right? Like they're supposed to, they're, they shouldn't look good. They're not, you know, six foot tall, 175 pound adults. It shouldn't sure. look the same. Right. So I think that's, I think that's hard. I think that's hard for people to, to kind of understand as well. Sometimes that it's okay if it doesn't look the way that you see on TV. Yeah, for sure. I think we, we get stuck with a certain model in our head of how things should look. And um, then you look at all the great at like, and they don't look that way all the time. Right. You know, so it's, it's yeah. kind of a mis- misleading and sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing, again, like we talked kind of a little bit about, about variation before, but there's going to be natural variation between performers in general, mm-hmm. at the highest levels. Right. I think it's again, using 
it's easy to look at goalies and say, well, goalies physically don't look the same as each other. They don't play the yeah. same way as each other. I think an even easier one in pulling from baseball is looking at the different types of windups that we see in baseball pitchers, mm -hmm. right? Like how rarely they all share similar characteristics for their yeah. angles, but the process is entirely different for a lot of players, right? For sure. Yeah. We kind of think, you know, we, we recognize there's some things that kind of have to be there, but beyond that, there's lots of different ways to achieve the same thing. It costs a lot of different athletes. Yes, for sure. We want to allow for that. We allow a lot of those differences are due to your differences, your differences, body dimensions, flexibility, whatever. So we want to let you kind of find your own thing that works for you. We think that in the long run, that's going to be best. Yeah. And that's, again, that's very much where uh, I was fortunate enough in my undergrad degree where I got that, got that instilled in me. So earlier, oh, I so, that's good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I always say this. So I, I work with, I was this before I work with Dr. Nick Wadi at Ontario Tech University. Oh, okay. So he was, uh, so he yeah. was a supervisor in my research, but he also was my undergraduate sports psych professor. So okay, cool. this was, yeah. So this was always something that was, it kind of ingrained into me, I guess, earlier on in my, in my coaching journey, which was, you know, there is, we have end goals, but we have processes and self-learning and self-organization is so valuable um, mm -hmm. that, yeah, you don't want to take the creativity out of people too early, right? Let them yeah. solve themselves. I think so. I think you kind of want to teach them the kind of the main overall kind of principles and things rather than, I always talk about, I would, when, my, when I was a young goalie, the drill I, one my coach gave me once was, he had shooters all around and circle around. And he said, all, all you can do is go out and cut down the angle. You're not allowed to move at all to stop the shot. You can't try to block, you can't move your stick, your body. And basically he was trying to show me how many people missed or hit me the puck mm. if you cut down the angle properly, which I did, I learned. Very, it was amazing. You just let the practice environment show me that rather than telling me you need to go, you need to be here, then there. It was so, is there always remember that? It was a very powerful one. Um, so yeah, letting those things kind of things happen. It's and it's funny. I had yeah. I was telling that story to, to one of my goalies, and I put the script entirely on them uh, about a month ago where I said, I'm going to make you in this drill, it's a team practice, I'm going to make you stand on your goal line the entire drill. Yeah. And you're going to have to see how much. You need to move your <laughs> arms to make saves. And again, he's a under 18 goalie, so he's 17, um, and realized pretty quickly that it wasn't actually that much. And so he, mm -hmm. I had found that he'd been making kind of this overreaching mistake. He was overreaching for pucks, things hitting him awkwardly. Mm -hmm. Again, okay, now you're at the deepest you can be. How far do you really need to reach, right? And I, and I found, and I guess what this comes down to for, for people listening is like these are ideas of constraints, right? Which you mentioned yeah. before. Um, and that is the approach I use for coaching, which is a constraints-led approach. And so while we have talked about it, could you give me your best, this is the time to shine the best technical and academic explanation for constraints-led approach. And then I guess what that means practically, right? Because I think both are interesting and relevant. Sure. So the a constraint, the, the, it basically it starts with the idea, you know, there's lots of different, you think of a, like in my sport, hitting a baseball, there's a literally an infinite number of ways I could swing a bat to hit a baseball. Um, and, and there's famous researcher Nikolai Bernstein called this the degrees of freedom problem. There's too many options. How do you pick? And a cons the reason we call it, it sounds funny because constraint sounds like we tie you up. Or something, right? <laughs> a constraint is something that gets rid of one of the solutions, right? So it's not going to, if I throw a ball at 100 miles an hour, there's a lot of solutions that are going to fall away. They're not going to work anymore. You're not going to get the bat as quickly. So the constraint side approach is adding something to practice, a new constraint or changing a constraint to kind of guide someone to a particular solution or get them to explore different solutions. So 
the number of players, the size of the playing area are all constraints, rules, equipment, uh, you know, all the, all, so there's a lot, it, there's a lot of different ones you can be really creative with, but that's the basic approach. So getting kind of using these, these things in the practice environment to kind of change how the person is moving rather than void as much as possible, avoiding telling them, oh, you need to get down on your knees there. You know, like that, that's what we're trying to move away from a little bit uh, for lots of reasons. We know that's not effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The example in hockey, I always say is a constraint for, for, team coaches, as I say, imagine a drill where a player just can't make a pass or a shot with their backhand. They have to, right? Because what, what I'm saying, or receive a pass on their backhand, what I'm saying is they need to move their body open and change their hip angles and their knee angles to only use their forehand, mm -hmm. right? Now, again, naturally, the first time I ever said that, a player looked at me and goes, but I use my backhand in the game. This is stupid. And I said, okay. <laughs> I, I promise there's an explanation here. But again, that is the common the common response a lot of the time, right? So like, why? Right. But the yeah. point is, again, like you said, you're, you're modifying something to encourage something else without giving away what you're trying to, to do. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. So we're trying to get you to, to try something different and explore and stuff. You're right. And often this is where people get, because constraints are often going to be very different than the game, mm -hmm. right? But we're doing it for a purpose. Like we're not just picking randomly. You didn't just pick that rule out of a hat, right? There was a reason you want you wanted to encourage certain behavior, right? And um, yeah, exactly, yeah. And then in in my situation, there is the team I was working with at the time. We had the very large issue of just missing backhand passes when they could have mm -hmm. just taken the puck on their forehand. Now, yeah, should they develop the skill to receive a backhand pass? Absolutely, hundred mm -hmm. percent. That's an important skill to be able to do. But at the same time, it's them acknowledging what's going to be more successful in the long run. And if we know that all it takes is opening up to receive a pass on your forehand is more beneficial long-term, well, we should encourage that too. And also can encourage the skill development of being able to receive a pass. on that. Yeah. Right. Both can be true. Right? You can constrain around both situations for sure. Encourage learning for both. Mm -hmm. Now, what, and again, and I know, I know this is, I'm still one of your examples that, that you talk about by using different like bat sizes and bat weight sizes, even mm -hmm. more weights and ball sizes for pitchers of, as kind of examples of constraints. Um, do you see that broader concept, does that need to be introduced only at a later stage of development and maturation for athletes? Or do you see a place for that, uh, for even for younger athletes? Now, again, aside, we talked about like the small pucks or age appropriate basketballs, but let's say those kind of like teenagers who are in that in-between phase, do you think you can kind of add those equipment manipulations continually throughout the development process? I think so. I like to think of it, you know, you're just giving the athlete a new problem to solve. Here, here's a heavier or bigger ball. Throw a strike with it, right? Mm -hmm. or, or get on them. There is some, you know, I face a lot of hesitation because, you know, heavier and young kid sounds like injury, right? That's an in automatic injury to a lot of people. Um, but there's nothing special about five ounces or six ounces that makes it injured. They're just as likely to get injured. So obviously you need to be careful and think about how... Um, the key for me is that I really like to kind of mix it, and I don't want to have like a progressive five, then six, then eight, then ten. I think that's where you can get into injury problems where people are just trying to throw things harder and harder and going up. I'd rather mix things in. That's kind of the rule, kind of randomly and variably. But yeah, I think so. I think that could be beneficial. Um, you know, we always talk, I always talk about kind of scaling it to their age and their skill level. Um, you know, if they're if they're People, younger athletes bring a lot of their own, like you said with the kid, that young goal, they bring a lot of their own variability to right. the ice, right? 
So you don't want to, you don't need to add as much to as a coach with your, with your practice, but as they get more and more advanced for sure, I think that could be beneficial. Yeah. And I, that kind of like mirrors the way that I look at it and the way that I viewed as well. I think with the younger, younger athletes, I think a lot of environmental constraints will allow for those self-organization opportunities, right? You just change. Okay. You have to, you know, you have a smaller size area of ice or pitch or a smaller field. Um, or even again, just change the number of people, right? Two versus three, four versus two, all these different situations that forces different styles of learning. I think hockey, um, though sometimes a slow adapting sport, unintentionally does those constraints without really acknowledging excuse me, or realizing that they're doing them. I think of all the, the two versus three, three versus three small area games that I did growing up in, again, growing up in the mid 2000s, and people don't really refer to them as small area games. They're just battle drills, right? We're just battling. Like little, little did, or maybe they didn't quite appreciate that. Actually, you're forcing them to view and respond differently, right? Teach them different skills, right side of the pot, right? Position where to go that way. So I think it's actually, I think in some ways it's been used without people fully appreciating maybe the science or the theory behind it even. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I, what I always like to point out, like I grew up playing road hockey, obviously yeah. as a kid, I'm a, and we do that. We do it naturally all the time, right? One of the goalies is missing. Okay, turn the net around or lay it on the ground. Let's make, or we have one player way better. Oh, you're not allowed to take slap shots. Like we make our own constraints all the time, right? Mm-hmm. To balance things out. And so kids are used to this, <laughs> you know, uh, we just kind of lose it somewhere along the way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess maybe it's, maybe it's just, we try to make them little professionals too quickly sometimes or think, or even think maybe that professionals don't do this sort of work, even though. We, yeah, they do for right? sure. Yeah, for sure. A lot of times it's no, a lot of the sports I've seen it happen separately from like in, in baseball, there's kind of private training facilities where people do these weighted ball things. And part of it is the failure, right? But you don't want to look bad in front of your teammates and people right. watching you in the stands. Um, but yeah, a lot of it is going on for sure. And across a lot of sports, I think. Yeah, and again, at the at the professional level, when the difference between you know being a star performer or a middle performer is so small, right? The difference mm-hmm. between abilities between these athletes is right. It's it's again, you have to get creative. Now, again, for people listening, this idea of again power law of practice, and the more practice you accumulate, and the better type of practice that you accumulate over a certain amount of time, it's diminishing returns, right? If you practice, you know, eight thousand of incredibly focused hours, the next thousand are probably a lot less valuable than the first thousand. That's mm-hmm. yeah. Right? So it's again, that's where this extra motor learning or these extra creative ways of of learning might be a difference, especially if maybe they haven't been introduced to that type of practice before as well. Because right? we know yeah. everyone has different practice histories. Not everyone some people may have had been introduced to a constraints led approach from an early age. Or they've been through structured blocked practice for 15 years and that's all they've ever known. Yeah. Right. So Again, you mentioned variability in drills, but variability in training in general probably has the ability to improve skill acquisition and motor learning over longer periods of time as well, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think there's more recent, there's more research. You get more kind of bang for your buck, the same amount of practice. And there's some really interesting research showing it's also related to injury, right? Doing the exact same butterfly as a goalie, but the same stress on your knee tendons, for example, versus doing slightly different one because you have to stop a pucks from slightly different angle. You're not doing it exactly the same way every time, reducing kind of the stress on your, there's research showing that can be beneficial for kind of markers of ACL injury and things like that as well. Yeah. It's, it can, and long it, performance benefits. Yeah. 
right? So again, we're starting to see kind of those benefits across the major domains I think we all care about, which is health and then performance, yeah. right? Yeah. So switching a little bit, a little bit of a lens here, um, there's something that it kind of has, again, another trend that's taken over the goalie world is the introduction of VR training. So this idea of, you know, I'm a goalie. I know that the best way to train is probably on the ice where I'm going to have, um, again, closer, the most representative design. But mm -hmm. we also know that maybe we don't have access to ice. We don't have access to training. So a lot of people are, are kind of turned to this idea of VR. And even in some instances, replacing some of what their more standard training would look like with this idea of VR. Now, I know specifically in hockey goalies, I get asked this multiple times a week. We don't have a, a large substantial base of um, empirical evidence that has examined the impact of VR training on ice hockey goalies. But there's been, over the past couple of decades, VR in soccer and VR in handball, or at least big screens and computer augmented reality. And and you've done some some work and some writing on this topic. So I was kind of hoping you could just do a little bit of a an explanation and kind of exploratory detail around that sort of line, some pros, maybe some cons, what you're seeing. Yeah, I, I kind of, I've always had a very, a little, maybe a different than a lot of people. Like, I think, I, th I think VR can be very useful as a value added to real practice, right? It can be, I don't think putting this effort, trying to replace everything perfectly so you can hear the sound of the puck is exactly, I think that's a, a more, and get the fidelity perfect. Uh, I don't think that's a valuable use of, I think, at, like, for example, when we talked about variability as a goalie, like shooting from all different angles, and, and that's hard practically, especially if you're the only coach there, like zooming around, you can easily do that in VR, right? You could put 20 virtual coaches all shooting. So you can you can add more variability. You can get more kind of reps, more um, change of constraints easily and quickly. That's kind of what I've done in some of my research. Um, so taking advantage of to do things that are practically not as easy, um, uh, I think, in, and kind of you know, knowing the limitations. Like, you're never going to be able to uh, practice controlling a rebound as a goalie in VR because the, the, the haptic proprioceptive feedback you get from the puck, we can't simulate at all. We can simulate the visuals of being a goalie. But so moving around, cutting down the angle, things like that, probably there's going to be some advantages, but... So I think, you know, taking advantage of it to put in some of these things like variability and challenge a little easier. Um, we could also, the one of the things I've used it for is kind of adapting practice, right? So maybe we, as you get better, we increase the speed of the shots systematically as you make, you know, and as it gets more difficult, we cut it back. So, so the things that are hard to do in real, in real practice, that's what I try to focus on. Yeah, that's, again, super interesting. It's kind of the same thing that we've discussed a lot on here too. One of the the big things in any sport that, again, is like, again, perception action. So, the, funny enough, the title of, of your podcast, right? Mm -hmm. But this idea of, again, in hockey, in baseball, any goaltending or response sport where you're picking up that visual information. So in this case, the way a shooter's body is orienting in space, the way that their stick is lined up, or in baseball, again, this, the angle of the pitcher's shoulder, their elbow, their wrist, where that ball is being released. Being able to learn from that is probably pretty valuable, right? Getting additional mm -hmm. reps from that. The one question I've always had, and this is, again, what people ask me, but also I'm curious about, is how, since we know how valuable that type of information is, if the, the say the VR doesn't mimic that super well, let's say that again, you're seeing a puck coming at you, 
but you're not getting that same type of image from the way the, the virtual players orienting their body or their stick. Is there a potential drawbacks from a missed learning situation, or is this just going to be more variability in, in another way to look at it that's not going to have a negative transfer? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I think it depends on how kind of what the limitation is. Um, if it if it's just not as good, then I, I think you're right. It's just going to But if there's some simple shortcut because of the way it, like, every time there's a slap shot, this thing happens. And right. the, the the goalie is going to learn a strategy that's not going to transfer into the game. That can actually be next. Like in baseball, we see this, you know, when you're hitting off a pitching machine, you have that you can see the ball coming down the chute. You can hear it, right? That hearing the ball come out, you, you can time your swing kind of that. You don't hear a ball come out like that in a, when you bit off a real pitcher. So you're kind of, you can get kind of what's called negative transfer of training. Your you know, strategy you learn in practice doesn't work in the game. So, yeah, I think if there was something like that, I would worry. But as long as it's kind of varying and doing enough different things, I think, you know, just different, um, yeah. adding variability, right? Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, for, for those listening who maybe aren't tuned into the baseball world as well, there's now pitching machines with full 4K LED displays mm -hmm. that you can see and that have the pitcher's perfect release height, that have the pitcher's motion and the ball leaves. Um, how cool are those things? Am I Do I think they're cooler than they are? Are they as cool as they sound? No, they're pretty cool. There's a, yeah, there's one company, Chaject, that they make them. They project it and the ball comes and they slide the thing back and forth. It's pretty amazing. So you can you can pra do batting practice off any particular pitcher. You have video all happening. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some, you know, limitations about, for example, like uh, the pitcher's arm in the video doesn't, the how quickly they move doesn't change as they change different pitches, right? right. So it doesn't, there are some limitations, but it is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, when I when I first heard about it, I was like, "This is this is pretty fantastic." Yeah, and it, it does. You can see the kind of intensity go up as you go from that to a regular machine, from a regular machine to that. I can see it in the players. Yeah. Well, it's also, I mean, the, the it's also banned during games, so people can't use it during game time. So you can't go take reps when a yeah. relief catcher comes in, which I find it pretty funny. Uh, yeah, I probably a reasonable rule, uh, because again, advantages and whatnot. But I think again, that type of technology, when we think of I guess representativeness that's pretty pretty close for a pitching machine right that's probably almost close to be optimized for a pitching machine yeah you're getting a lot of the same the information i think um you're right from the body and and the play of the ball for sure you're getting it's, it's getting much closer to game like definitely yeah so i think kind of the, the last and final thing i wanted to talk about just because it ties in Pretty nicely with this idea, we talked about positive transfer and negative transfer, right? So what type of practice is going to lead to positive results in a game? And and like you just kind of mentioned, sometimes learning one style to be successful in one moment doesn't transfer well to another game. I think of an example in hockey when, you know, a team is using a really linear repetitive flow drill. So the player's coming down, shooting from the same spot over and over again. We're at least tired of that. So they stand four feet outside of their crease and they just get hit over and over again, which is something mm -hmm. they probably can't get away with in a game, right? Mm -hmm. So in situations like that, I know this is probably the number one thing that I hear from parents in practice. And obviously some of the research I do is around practice design and hockey for goalies. And it's how do we ad address for that? In a weird way, the drill itself is constraining the learning of the goaltender because the, it's designed around um, more so the team, or at least what the goal the coach thinks is for the team, rather than maybe for the goalie itself, for the games yeah. as part of that. Do you think that in those situations, one of the better approaches is to try and get, again, 
take one part of that that drill and one thing that might positively transfer. So I mentioned before, sometimes in drills like that, I'll ask my goalie to stand really far back on their net and really force themselves to reach and extend and, and watch pucks longer because they're not as far out. Their net's bigger. That's one of my workarounds that I've used for drills like that, where it's like 40 or 50 shots from the same spot in a four or five minute time frame. I was kind of curious on what your thoughts on those are. Is in those situations, is it worth, you know, further constraining maybe the goalie in that situation to try to get something out of it, or just try to minimize maybe negative transfer and bad habits from that non-representative type of drill that they get? Yeah, I think so. There's a couple of things. One, I, I'm sure you would agree. I don't think that that drill is good for the offensive players either. No, I think it's <laughs> really and it asked me crazy. Big, um, so let's, if we want to start, let, like I, I've seen some of this good in basketball, let's start with whatever you want, like a three on two or pick and roll, and then let the players decide after that. Then open it up to some creativity and making this, there's no decisions involved. You tell it. So that's, let's start with that. <laughs> it's bad. But yeah, I th- I like what you're doing there. Like, I think, Giving the goalie some constraints, making it start on different posts or like different positioning to get different, give them a different, uh, you know, different some variability in that. I think is probably the best thing you can do. Um, you're kind of stuck um, in that situation with the the same thing over and over. Yeah, yeah. So some of the work that like I've tried to do, some of the work that I've done with my master's thesis was looking at um, even like technical perceived effort of drill types and different things for all players and. The thing that I think I noticed the most, and I see lots of different practices from teams of all ages, from university down to, you know, eight years old. That's kind of the, the realm that I work in. And to see just how linear so much of practice is, right? Where it's like, go here, then go here, then go here, which is the never existing in a game situation, especially in, in sports that are sports in, in parallel, like soccer or hockey, right? Where there's constant motion there's not set starting points or there's rare set starting Mm -hmm. right i find that to be something that we don't i guess maybe on a coaching lens we don't talk about enough is the the cognitive learning demands of variability and drills and and you know make this pass then make this pass and skate here there's you said there's no decision making which is one of the biggest components of of learning is for sure right Mm -hmm. so i always i always struggle with that and i think that at least what I've been trying to do for the past little while is that's my recommendation is create more options, force more decision-making uh, in your drill types as my one general suggestion to coaches. Um, if you sure. had, if yeah, so if you had one general suggestion, that's my general one is make people think more and make the cognitive challenge match what the cognitive demands are in games. Um, yeah, I think, you know, you said it earlier, the perception action and you want your movements and your decisions and to be driven by what's happening in front of you, not what a coach told you. That's when athletes are going to perform the best. I have my son playing basketball this earlier this year and they were, the coach was trying to put in a new play and he was telling you go here, you set a screen there and they could never remember because it was meaningless. It was just a dance. It was choreography, right? You told them, I want you to cut that defender off. That's why you're going here. Yeah. Are you and so much of it is unopposed too, right? They're practicing it, putting it with no defense thing. Mm-hmm. But you want them to learn things based on what they see the defense is doing to them. So that's kind of the biggest thing. Yeah, I agree with you. That so much of it is is it's so much demanding, and kids are not going to remember where you tell them to go. But if you told them, you know, I want you to block, take that defender out that's covering the guy with the puck, then they understand, right? Yeah. Um, I try to watch them learn screens and they're setting on the wrong side and because they don't understand what yeah. you're supposed to accomplish, right? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Absolutely. The, uh, yeah. the, as again, as a girly, as a coach, as a, uh, again, a, a young researcher, the number one bane of my existence is the five on no power play trail in hockey yeah. where the, where the girly stuck again, five on no, the team is in theory practicing the play they want for their mm-hmm. power play, except you, well, now they have infinite ways of making that play happen. Yes. Right. Yeah. Like that, fi- that five on no power play looks so good in practice. Like it look, it's dynamite. Why don't we score more in games? Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And again, it's not to, it's not to make fun of anyone. That's the way that I grew up learning. That's mm-hmm. the way that when I first coached, that's how I thought too, because like, okay, we have to do it like this. Once we get it perfect like this, then we can add one defender. Or the funny juxtaposition is we practice five on no from the get go, no constraints, and then right to five on four. And so yeah. now we've made this enormous leap, um, and now the the learning they've just made on that five on no, that's going to have a tough time transferring because the information, yeah. like you said, is just not there anymore, right? It's completely yeah. different. So yeah, I'd much rather you know we want to learn when you could pass when there's this much space that you shoot right drive when they, that's what you learn. But from the start, I would rather than my pass because the coach said when they get the puck, I put, yeah, right. So yeah, um, again, it's going back to that you know parents getting frustrated because <laughs> letting go of the control of the coach that they know the best thing to do all the time, right? Yeah, kind of letting yeah. athletes just have more autonomy in making those decisions yeah and it's tough i guess the last thing i'll say and i know that you've spoken on this a bunch is it's also tough because on one lens people say well why don't you just let them play all the time then too right we know that's not the best learning either Mm -hmm. right like if it was just let them do whatever then we would just let people scrimmage five on five in hockey or five on five in basketball the whole time and we would assume that that would teach them the best and while there's definitely a time and place for scrimmaging and what i call again competition replication direct competition replication it's that's not always going to promote learning either. So there has to be a healthy balance of, like you said, bunch representative enough, but you know, not just letting absolute just full yeah, pre- like yeah. play scrimmage going on, right? Yeah, for sure. I think you know, I think goalie is a good example. You could have long, long time where you're getting no shots, you're getting no opportunity, you're not practicing. Also, I think you know more and more. We I say we're kind of recognizing. We all know this. You have to coach to an individual. Like mm. you want to coach to what does the goalie need to work on? Trolling weak out, rebound, saving screenshots, whatever it is. Right. We want to kind of create reps of more reps of those those kind of situations in practice. Then they might get in the game. They might only get one of them, and it goes in, and they right. right? So you want to get you want to kind of maximize that in practice. That's why we don't want to just let always let them play. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's a, yeah, yeah, that's a great example, right? Where and then, yeah. yeah. And adding the constraints to like the constraints are going to kind of enhance and let them explore that. We can't put that same constraint in the game. <laughs> right. Tell your team before the game, you're not allowed to make backhand passes. This game. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, pl- I played for a coach um, in college who would kick players off for making a backhand pass in the neutral zone. That was the constraint. If you made that. Okay. Throw some of the back. <laughs> Which I, had, I think is a. It's a pretty severe consequence. Yeah. Because sometimes the backhand pass is the right play. So, For sure. right. Yeah. So, like, there's, again, there's given, there's take. And it's complicated. And that's what makes it hard. And that's what, again, what makes coaching hard. But that's what, hopefully, with some more information, coaches can start trying things and coaches can start adapting things. And I think we're making pretty significant progress, albeit sometimes slow progress. Yeah. Right? For sure. I think it's a, yeah. I, and it's a kind of a fun way to coach. I think if you really get into it, yeah. I think for kids, it really, you know, powers them a little bit, makes a bit more fun. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, I agree. So this has all been wonderful. And then, so I'm, I'm weary of time as always. And so 
I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time. Now, as all podcasts do, this is your chance to to market and why everyone should buy your books and why they should read them, why they should listen to your podcast, which are all things that people listening should do. So <laughs> if, people, if people are wanting to find more information from you, some of your work, uh, your information on your podcast, your website, now would be a great time to kind of pass that along. Yeah, thanks, Bill. I'll, I'll keep it fairly short. So all everything you can find out about me is I have a website called perceptionaction.com that covers as my podcast, Perception Action Podcast, the weekly podcast that kind of covers a lot of this uh, research in this area. And uh, the book that kind of covers this new approach to coaching we've been talking about, the strange side approach, is called How We Learn to Move. Um, that's kind of the, the book. And so it's all there. You just perceptionaction.com, one-stop awesome. shopping. Yeah. Yeah. It's again, and it's a website that I use all, uh, as well. There's lots of information. There's scientific articles for those people who I never listen to the show and are always curious about the science behind it. There's lots of good resources that are linked on that website too. So I just want to say thank you so much for, again, for taking the time today. This has been wonderful. This uh, heavily feeds my biases. So I'm no longer going to challenge any of my own thoughts now that they've been enforced. <laughs> so um, again, thank you very much and I appreciate you having me on today. Oh, my pleasure, Jim. And I really enjoyed it. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.